0: As a Christian church, the realities of that first Easter 2,000 years ago are always with us. We couldn't possibly restrict ourselves to remembering them just once a year. Every week we are prompted to remember the resurrection of our Saviour from the dead, for it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose. And from that time onwards, the church began to meet on the first day of the week, for to them, it would forever be the Lord's day, and so it continues to be for us. And as far as we're concerned at Belvedere Road Ch- Church, we, we partake of the Lord's Supper together twice each month in remembrance of Christ's suffering and death. These historical events concerning Jesus and what it was that God accomplished For us through him these are so central and foundational to our faith that we dare not limit our remembrance of them to one weekend annually we couldn't nevertheless we live in an age where we have this long tradition of marking the annual anniversary of the atoning work of Christ And it's no problem for us at all to join in with the rest of the Christian church in celebrating the wonder of God's grace as it has been revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today is traditionally earmarked as Palm Sunday. It's in John's Gospel record that we read that the trees from which the people took down branches were palm trees and those branches were then either spread out on the road as Jesus made his way into the city or people waved them uh, above their heads in their hands and as Jesus approached the city gate he did so at the beginning of the week in which he would be crucified. The four men who wrote an account of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all quote some of the words spoken by the crowds on that occasion as Jesus entered Jerusalem. In Mark's Gospel, you find it recorded in chapter 11, and there he records these words, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Those words are taken from the Psalms, from Psalm 118 and Psalm 148. And the words from Psalm 118 you will also find recorded in Luke's Gospel. If you turn to John, like Matthew, he records the words of the crowd, which are the fulfilment of an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Zechariah. at chapter 9, verse 9. Neither of them record that verse in full, but it's clear that that's what it's based upon. And if you turn to Zechariah, these are the words that you read verse 9 of chapter 9 rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you he is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey a colt, the foal of a donkey For many centuries, Jewish scholars and teachers had understood those words to be speaking about God's promised Messiah for Israel. There was no doubt in their mind. But following the events concerning Jesus and the testimonies of those who said they had seen him risen from the dead, and then the establishing of the church, the Jews Changed their position on that particular text in Zechariah so as to be able to deny that those words spoke of Christ they decided that that verse in Zechariah was not about the Messiah after all but they do so obviously speak of Christ and I want to point you to that verse in Zechariah this morning By way of introduction, I want you to see that this verse in Zechariah speaks of a momentous event that will bring great rejoicing. In the context of Zechariah's prophecy, he's talking about a future time in the history of Jerusalem when Alexander the Great would come sweeping through the Middle East with his marauding army, but God would spare Jerusalem and Alexander would not destroy it and he didn't and instead of a a conquering tyrant Jerusalem is promised their own king and he is a king of an altogether different sort so here are God's people being exhorted to rejoice at the promise of a coming king and not just any king not just a king Your king, says God's prophet, your king is coming to you. And what we find here, as happens on numerous occasions in the Old Testament, is that Zechariah's prophecy has an immediate relevance and application to and for the people of his own day to whom he was speaking. But it also speaks of something far greater. Which is to follow and which will be the real fulfillment of the Prophet's words Your King is coming. There is a King coming who outranks all other kings. Indeed, you could put together and combine the strength, the power, the wisdom, the authority of all the kings who ever ruled one of this world's kingdoms. And all of them together would be as a drop in the ocean compared to this king. This is the king who listens as earthly rulers plot and scheme together in the belief that they hold all the keys of power And influence and says the psalmist in Psalm 2 he who sits in the heavens shall laugh the Lord holds them in derision then he shall speak to them in his wrath distress them in his deep displeasure and then God will say this yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now, Zion is a name that appears a lot in the Old Testament. It's a kind of synonym for Jerusalem and Israel. And actually, it represents the entire household of God, Old and New Testament. Those who were genuine believers in the Old Testament and Christian believers in the Church of Christ over the last 2,000 years. Zion frequently represents all of them together. And this, this one whom God is saying is his king in Psalm 2 is the same one who is your king coming to you in Zechariah chapter 9. He is King of Kings. And he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can know him as your King. I wonder if you do. Well, it's my joy and privilege to tell you that you may know him as your King. And if you have that verse from Zechariah open in front of you in your Bible, you'll see that there are three specific things that are said about this one who is king. We're told he is just, that he has salvation and that he is lowly. I want to speak to you uh, for the rest of our time under those three headings. First of all, that this coming king is a just king. Not just a king, a just king. He's a king who reigns in perfect truth and righteousness and justice. He has committed no sin, nor was deceit ever found in his mouth, nor will it ever be. Do you remember how quite soon after young David met King Saul back in the Old Testament, David was exposed to Saul's quite violent, at times, mood swings. Very erratic behaviour. Who needs a king like that? That's not the king who is coming. And then David himself, as king of Israel, He fell into awful sin and disgrace. And many of the kings who would follow after him would all be judged as those who did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not this king who is coming. This will be the one in whom God is well pleased. As eternal God, he dwells in the glory of his own being, in perfect holiness. This king is a king of perfect righteousness and goodness because he is just. He doesn't have the weaknesses and frailties of character which we observe in the kings of Israel and Judah in the Bible. Um, The same frailties that cause us to so often let one another down, disappoint each other. This king will never fail or disappoint you. All of his decrees are infinitely wise and right and good. King Solomon was famed all around the known world for the wisdom he displayed. Wisdom which, of course, God gave him in answer to his prayer. But this king who is coming, he is the very source of that wisdom. All things are known by him and to him. There is nothing that is hidden from him in terms of his knowledge and everything that he ever chooses to do is always the wisest and most perfect of choices. All of his judgments are right and true. You and I are constantly judging things, assessing things, exercising discretion about things. And all of us like to think that we are far better at that than we really are. But this king is a king of perfect judgment. He sees and evaluates things exactly as they are and always without error he looks at you and he judges you perfectly there is no error at all in his assessment of you and in particular he is able to discern true holiness and righteousness on the one hand from sin and wickedness on the other He sees your sin and mine and he exercises judgment against sin and against sinners. What a king this is. But here's the thing. There has never been a king or queen who has been the king or queen of everything or everywhere. Their kingdom and their authority always has borders and boundaries. There have been large kingdoms and empires in this world, but none that have ever embraced the whole world. This king who is spoken of here is unique. His reign is over everything and over everyone. And yet, not all are citizens in his kingdom. Zechariah is able to say, your king is coming. But there are many in this world who cannot claim him as their king because they do not know him, they do not accept him or love him or serve him as their king. They do not want him to be their king. That's actually a remarkable situation because he is such a wonderful king to live under. This king of perfect truth and righteousness and justice. Those who live under him are truly able to say, the king of love, my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack. If I am his, and he is mine forever. And yet, so many in their sinfulness reject him. And here's the thing. Ordinarily, a king's authority only lies within his own kingdom and over his own subjects. And so those who reject him think that they needn't have anything to do with him. And he will never be bothering me. If you Christians want to live under this God, well, fine. But it's not for me. And I want nothing to do with this king. And they think he has nothing to do with me. But this king because he is king of kings, he's like no other king. Even though there are many who willingly remain outside of his kingdom, they have not escaped his reach or his authority. And they certainly have not escaped his justice or his judgment. This is the just king. And uh, one of the things that that means is that he will see justice done against sin and sinners. And it's this Lord Jesus Christ who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey 2,000 years ago who is that king. And his arrival in Jerusalem was that justice might be done against sin. Because the second amazing truth that's revealed in Zechariah chapter 9 is that this king will bring salvation. Because secondly, we see that this king will be a saving king All sin is found out by his all-seeing eyes. Not only does he see your deeds and hear your words, he knows every intent and thought of your heart, every single one. All is laid bare before him, and according to his perfect justice, it is judged. You are judged. I am judged. And the Bible tells us that in our sins, all are found guilty. There is none righteous to be found, not one. There is none worthy to be admitted into his kingdom. There are none to be found who even want to own him as their king, because there are none who seek after God. And yet, Zechariah has said, rejoice, Zion, for your king is coming to you. So, who is he addressing? Who are these people who are citizens of his kingdom, when yet all of us in our sin cannot enter? They are those whom he has come to save. Because yes, he comes in justice and all are found guilty. But here's the glorious good news. Here is the reason for rejoicing. He comes with salvation that sinners may be saved. This is the story and the message of Easter. The king has saved his own people so that they may be his people. No wonder there should be such rejoicing. Four times in the Old Testament we read of God becoming my salvation. We read it first in Exodus chapter 15. Then in two two places in Psalm 118, two verses there. And then again in Isaiah chapter 12. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. And I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. I will praise you, for you have answered me and become my salvation. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Because I could never save myself. And the King has come. And he will literally become our salvation. How will he do that? Well, he'll accomplish it because thirdly he will also come as a lowly King the second person of the Godhead the only son begotten not created eternally God from everlasting to everlasting the one without whom nothing that was created would ever have been created. He left the glories of heaven to become that which he had never been. From the place of perpetual eternity, where he had always been unrestrained by time, he steps into the confines of time. To his eternal deity, is added the nature of a man so that the Lord Jesus Christ becomes one person with two distinct natures without there being any confusion between the two of them. Are you understanding this? No, me neither. It's beyond human understanding. It's beyond human invention. This is divine truth we're dealing with. And it should simply cause us all to fall on our faces before Him. These are the glories and wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God man, who, having only ever dwelt as Spirit, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin to be born as flesh and blood, yet remaining God. He humbled himself in meekness and lowliness to be as a servant towards you and to be salvation for you. Worldly kings show their pomp and strength and authority. They would have ridden into Jerusalem on a horse or in a chariot drawn by horses not this king. This king has come to Jerusalem to display meekness and humility and to do so in such a way as the world has never seen before or since. Hence, he arrives sitting on a donkey. What might drive such a king to do such a thing. Love, compassion, mercy, grace, in perfect and infinite measure. But we haven't even got to the half of it yet. Why come into this world as a man, as flesh and blood? Because he's come to give of himself and to lay down his life for those whom he will save. This king, who is altogether just, knows only too well that the wages of sin is death, for it is his own justice that that death must be in place to satisfy his own justice. And the perfect justice of heaven must be satisfied. If he is to have a people of his own dwelling with him in his kingdom, then something first must be done about their sin. And he is that something. He will become their salvation for them. He, the King of Kings, in a few days' time will willingly go to the cross to take upon himself the penalty and sentence of all the sins of all his people. And on that cross he will die in their place as their substitute to satisfy the justice of heaven so that they may be admitted into his kingdom. No wonder... Zechariah exhorts the people to rejoice. He truly is a king like no other. Will you not rejoice with them this Easter? Will you not see the Lord Jesus Christ as the King who has come in justice and in lowliness and in order that he might bring you salvation from your sins. That's my prayer for you this Easter time, that you might behold him as the one who has come to you, just, lowly, and having salvation, that you might rejoice as you own him, as your king.